So when I was a sophomore at the national champion Harding University, <laughs> yeah, right? That's crazy, right? Which also, uh, Lipscomb last night and Abilene Christian and like within a week, you can't tell me that someone in the Razorback office is not from Churches of Christ. But back to the story. When I was a sophomore, um, I was a Bible major. I was going around preaching at different churches. And I had like six good sermons. And I think they were good, but there was only six of them. And I would go around and, you know, do different stuff. I did devos with those six sermons all over um, campus, different events. And when I was a sophomore... I was at this function, a social club date, and I didn't, uh, I didn't go planning to preach, but somebody came up to me that was in charge of the event, and they said, actually, the person who was supposed to give the Devo is sick, and so Jonathan, do you mind doing it? And I looked around the room, there's a few hundred people, and they'd all heard all six of my sermons. And I was like, what am I going to do? And then it dawned on me, I had just like the week before heard one of my best friends, Michael Peters, who's actually preached at this church before. I'd heard him give a sermon on Jesus and the disciples and how the disciples didn't get Jesus. It was a really good sermon. He called it Stuck on Stupid, talking about the disciples. And it was just a good sermon. And as a preacher, I remember good sermons. And as I'm in this pickle, I realize like, oh, I don't have any sermons. Yes, I do. And I get up and I give this sermon. I don't tell them that it's from Michael. They don't need to know that. I mean, anyway, so I just give the sermon and, you know, it went great and nobody's any wiser. Until the next day in chapel, I am sitting next to Michael Peters and the guy who was given the Devo in chapel that day says, I had everything planned on what I was going to give. But last night... I heard Jonathan Stormont give a brilliant sermon on the disciples and Jesus. And I'm like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And he goes, he called it stuck on stupid. And Michael Peters, who is normally in a coma in chapel, I sat next to him for, you know, semesters. This is the first time I see this dude stir. All of a sudden he resuscitates and he's like, what, what did he say? <laughs> and then some things he picked up on, a key word is brilliant. I know exactly what he said because decades later, Michael Peters can quote the entire paragraph of that guy quoting him, but actually quoting me. And I tell you that because we're in the beginning of a series on the gospel of John and of all the gospels, of all, there's four gospels in the New Testament, stories of the life of Jesus. And of all the Gospels, John is the most okay with what I did. John is a big plagiarist, plagiarist, right? So some of y'all grew up in church. You know the first few words of the Gospel of John. How does it start? In the beginning. What other book of the Bible is he cribbing from? Genesis, right? The very first book of the Bible. John is in the first chapter is telling you everything he's going to tell you about for the next 20 chapters. So it starts off with Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new Israel. He's the new Exodus. He's the tabernacle of God. There are how many signs in the gospel of John? How many miracles that John calls signs? Seven. What else does God do in seven? 
Seven days of creation. And in chapter one, he is telling you all the stuff that you're, he wants you to get ready for. And he starts with God's faithful presence and promises to the Israelites. Now, the Israelites, before Israel is a nation state as you know it today, it was a person, a man. And before his name was Israel, his name was Jacob. Now that sounds like, is there any, I don't want to do that. Jacob means liar in Hebrew. Jacob, if you're out there, I'm sorry. I didn't name you. Your parents did, but that's what it meant. It meant liar. And when we first meet Jacob, he's living up to his name. He has destroyed his life. He's destroyed the people in his family's lives. People he's on the run from his older hairy brother slash Chewbacca named Esau. Um, he, he is, uh, He's on the run because Esau said he's going to kill him. And in this kind of nowhere place, Jacob lays down and has a dream. In Genesis chapter 28, we'll start there. It says in um, verse, starting in verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land upon which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the east and the west, to the north and the south. And all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now here's the problem for church people or people with any kind of religious background. If you are trained to think of these stories as stories of morals or moralistic examples, you're going to miss it. Because Jacob is not a good dude. People on the outside of Christianity or Judaism, when they first read these stories, they can see it clearly. Jacob is not a good dude. And because he's not a good dude, his life's a dumpster fire. And it's in precisely his lowest moment that God comes to him and says, I'm keeping my promises. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless all people on earth through you, Jacob. And Jacob all of a sudden realizes there is this thing that he saw in his dream. And in the Bible, dreams are a way that God often communicates. It's, it's how God lets us open up our eyes to some stuff that we're not paying attention to. And in this case, there's a ladder or a highway or a stairwell. I and mean, honestly, we don't know how to translate that word. It's context clues that we know. There's a link between heaven and earth. And he sees there's a link between heaven and earth and that God is paying special attention to me. And so he wakes up aware of this new thing that I think is happening all, all the time. We just don't see it. We don't pay attention to it. Our eyes, our attention is not trained on it. And it, it's, the world is not what we think it is. God is involved in this world. He's sending angels and emissaries on missions. You rarely see them, but they're always at work. And when Jacob realizes this, he gets up, he says, God was in this place and I was not, what was the word? Aware. You see that attention language? I didn't see it. I, I didn't see, I didn't under, I didn't know it was happening. 
And so he says, I'm going to build an altar, and he calls it Bethel, the house of God, the gateway of heaven. And this is in the moment in Jacob's life where he did not deserve anything like this. It was the lowest point in his life. Everybody wants to kill him. He's hurt everybody that's in his life. And God comes to him in that moment and says, I'm not done with you. In fact, I'm keeping my promise through you, liar. And all the time, there's this connection between heaven and earth and angels are ascending and descending. Now, why does God show Jacob this? So the first 20 verses of the Gospel of John are letting us know who it is stepped into human form, that the Word has become flesh. In Him all things were made. And then this Word gets into ministry. Jesus starts calling His first disciples. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 35, and we're going to read through the end of John 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, that's John the Baptist, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them and following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went where he was saying, staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Pay attention to that. <clears throat> Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who, the, and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the King, Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from around the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, here is truly an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. That checks out. Nathaniel thinks, yeah, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's three things I want you to see in this text today. The first is how people come to Jesus. The second is what Jesus does when they come. And the third is what they saw and how we can see it today. So let's take this one at a time. The first, how people come to Jesus from day one. Friends, same way you came. Maybe it was parents or grandparents, but from day one, the people who came to Jesus came through friends. I'm thinking this week about Miss Dorothy, who passed away this week. Miss Dorothy was baptized here in September, and when she was baptized, she had stage four cancer. Her and her daughter, Mandy, were baptized. It was this amazing thing, and 
Miss Dorothy is going to rest in peace and rise in glory. And this church has loved Dorothy and Mandy for the last few months. And they came here because Tara McCain invited them. I think about Rika. Rika, who last year was baptized. She grew up in Iran. She was raised Muslim. She was baptized last year. And it is almost not an overstatement to say Rika has invited most of Little Rock to this church over the past 18 months. I'm not kidding. I think about our nine-year-old Joel who invites so many people to church because he's just super godly like his dad. (laughs) And because he is really competitive for Bible bucks. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's happening. And that happened to you. That happened to me. People brought you to the Lord. Um, Just as an aside, a a recent survey said 80% of people asked in America if you were invited to church by a friend, would you come? And 80% said yes. Did you know that next week, next Sunday night, a Christmas Eve candlelight service is the easiest thing to invite someone to? It's not going to be offensive. We're not going to be offensive. And it's just a, a way of letting people know you care about them. So that's it. That's how people came to the Lord from the beginning. Second thing, I want you to see what Jesus does when they come. Jesus says over and over again, he says, he looks around, there's a couple people following him. He turns around and says, like, what do you want? And then he says, follow me. One of the things that's interesting is Jesus from the beginning was laser focused on people not following him for the wrong reasons. Like over and over again in the Gospels, there's a time in Luke 9 where um, some people are starting to follow him like, hey, we're interested in what you're doing. And Jesus turns around and goes, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. Which is not a great recruiting slogan, right? But Jesus is laser focused on people not following Jesus for the, not following him for the wrong reasons. And listen, this is just true in America when it comes to churches and our version of Christianity. There are a lot of fans of Jesus. People who like Jesus, maybe you like some of the stuff he said, but not that stuff. Or maybe you like having grown up in a culture where 2,000 years of people following and sacrificing for Jesus. You know, you kind of like that human rights, you know, hospitals, medicine, those kind of things. You appreciate those. But Jesus is not looking for fans. He wants people who follow him. And what that looks like We use this word a lot around here is disciple making or discipleship. And we don't get discipleship in America. And you know this because the the word discipline is in there. And part of what that means, what being discipled by Jesus as Lord means is you subjugate some desires for your ultimate desire. And this is one thing I know is true about all human beings, but I don't think we pay attention to this. Do we know that our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires? I I think a real question to sit with is the question Jesus asked these first disciples. What do you want? Really? Not what the ads tell you you want. Not what your latest impulse tells you you want. What are your deepest desires? Not just your strongest ones in the moment. 
And, and Jesus is, is trying to weed through that because to be a disciple of Jesus is to say, all other pursuits are secondary. To, to, I'm going to follow, learn, and love Jesus as my king. And in America, we don't do kings. But Jesus is very blunt about this. He says things like, look, whoever wants to find themselves will lose themselves. Whoever wants to, whoever's willing to lose themselves will find themselves. And in America and in the West, this is true. For the last few hundred years, this has been true of people across the political spectrum. This has been true of people economically, across the economic spectrum. What we think we should do is look inside and be like, who am I? But according to Jesus, and maybe he's wrong on this. I don't think he is. I don't think he's just divine. I think he's brilliant. According to Jesus, you'll never find out who you are. If you think fulfilling your desires have a higher purpose than the one filling out the, finding out the desires of the one who made you. And so Jesus is calling these first disciples into this new way of life, an apprenticeship. Some of y'all are home from college. And if somebody was to come up and ask you, what do you do? You'd say, I'm a full-time student. And, you know, what does that mean? I'm taking 16 hours. I'm taking 18 hours. Well, that's a heavy load. You know, you're waking up at 8 a.m. You're being done at 4. This is a different kind of full-time student, and it's not just about information. In fact, the closest thing to this in our culture would be more like a, a coach and an athlete. Think about if somebody wants to sign with Eric Musselman, Coach Muss. They're a senior. They're about to sign. They're going to get a full ride. And right when they're about to sign, they're like, Coach, you're not going to make me do anything difficult, right? Well, that's what you're signing up for. You're subjugating some of your desires, like comfort, for a bigger desire. Like to be an elite athlete, to be a part of an elite athletic team. Of course the coach is going to do that. But underneath it all, I think, is an impoverished view of who God is, who Jesus is. Okay, so if, if the things John has been telling us in the first 20 verses are true, if Jesus really is the one in whom all things were made, without him nothing was made, he holds the universe, the galaxies together. If that's true about him, then what does this mean? Okay, I, I heard this analogy from Tim Keller. Here, here's the best way I, I know how to put it. If the, the sun, the distance between the sun and the earth is 93 million miles, which is a lot. But if 93 million miles was just a single sheet of paper, if it was just a single sheet of paper, then the distance between the sun and the next star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And I went to show that to you, and I was like, we don't have enough paper. <laughs> 70 feet high. That's just between our star and the next nearest star. The Milky Way, the, the galaxy that we know the most about, if you just had the diameter of the Milky Way, um, it would be a stack of paper. If it's each individual paper was 93 million miles, it would be a stack. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. 
which is like mind-boggling. We can't even wrap our mind around numbers like that. But if John, if the Gospel of John is telling the truth, if this really is who Jesus is, then let me ask you a question. Do you invite someone like that into your life to be your assistant? If this is really who God is, if, if this is the word that all, in him all things were made, through him nothing was made without him, like if that's really who this is, do you invite this person in your life to be your executive secretary? Do, do you approach this person like, dear God, please let me, um, help me not get sick, help my relative to uh, get better, please help me get that parking spot, please help me get that promotion, um, and that's it. You, that's all. Thank you for your help. Don't call me, we'll call you. Is that how we relate to this God? And yet, I want you to see how gentle and patient Jesus is with these guys. Because at first, Nathaniel sneers. Here's Jesus is from Nazareth. And he's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And I relate to this. If you grew up in Arkansas, you relate to this. Because, okay, Arkansas's official state, well, we're, you know, we're 48th, we're 49th and everything. Um, and our official state model is, you know, the natural state. But our unofficial state motto is, thank God for... Listen, if you're from out of town, we didn't practice that. Our unofficial state motto has always been, thank God for Mississippi. Because we may be 48th or 49th, but we ain't Mississippi. And this is just the human condition, Right. So Nathaniel hears about Jesus and he's like, Nazareth, please. Yeah, you know, Israelites, Judea, Judea, we're, you know, oppressed by Roman rule, but we ain't Nazareth. And Jesus doesn't, you know, the one in him, all things were made. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you, Nathaniel? I demand obedience. Instead, he says, come and see. And if you were a modern-day Nathaniel, and I know there's several of us out here, you wouldn't ask questions like, can the Messiah really come from Nazareth? Which, by the way, Nathaniel knows the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So he's doing you know, he's a little bit of investigation there. That's not possible. The Messiah is supposed to be from somewhere else. And Jesus is gentle with him. And if you're a modern-day Nathaniel, you wouldn't ask questions like, ah, oh, the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. No, you'd ask questions like, how, how can there be a loving and merciful God with all the injustice in the world? And notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter. You just figure out what works for you. You do you. And neither does Jesus say, how dare you ask questions like that? No, what he says is come and see. And this is what I think is the best part of today. Jesus says, um, at the very beginning, all throughout this first chapter, you see, like early on, John the Baptist says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God. Um, all throughout the first chapter, it's, and they said, and they saw, or they, uh, they witnessed, they said, they witnessed, they testified. It's all the same word in Greek. It's a word that's actually saying, I saw this. I'm telling you this happened. It's written in extremely concrete, detailed ways. 
John is not saying this was some kind of inward feeling that they experienced. He's saying this is what actually happened. And so I want to explain this to you because it's actually kind of complicated in America because of genres changing. So um, did you see earlier when it said and they left about four in the afternoon? Well, these days, modern fiction uses that kind of detail. But in the ancient world, fiction did not use that kind of detail. Like today, you would maybe pick up a John Grisham book and it would say, and they they entered the house at four in the afternoon. But in the ancient world, there was nothing like that. There's um, an English professor who taught at Duke, who's a team that Arkansas actually also beat. Um, He taught at Duke for decades. Uh, He recently died a few years ago, but he was an English professor and he wrote a lot and he was highly respected. New York Times reviewed every book he ever did. And his name's Reynolds Price. And a few years ago, he wrote a book on the Gospels. He actually did a translation of the Gospels and he was talking about um, the Gospels. And one of the things he opens up in his book is by pointing this out. Modern fiction uses detail, but ancient fiction never used detail. You will never find in ancient fiction literature something like Lydia went to see the oracle at Delphi and it was about four in the afternoon. Even in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, you see over and over again, the next day, this was when it happened. It's not once upon a time or a galaxy far, far away. And Reynolds Price says, it's saying... In the ancient world, everybody would have known what this is actually saying is this really happened. What John is trying to say, and you don't have to believe it's true, but you need to know John is trying to tell you he thinks it's true. He thinks this actually happened, that this is an eyewitness account. This isn't a legend. This isn't something that just kind of evolved over the years. He's saying, I'm telling you what I saw and what the people I have talked to have seen. So how can you come and see? Because when Jesus says come and see, they could actually go to his house. They could go see where he was staying. They could hang out with him for a little bit. How can you come and see? John is saying, this is how you can come and see. Keep reading. Keep paying attention. So Reynolds Price, in his book on the Gospels, he opens up with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And here's what he says. There are only two possible views of the Gospel accounts. Either this is reporting as close to the facts as Boswell reporting to Samuel Johnson's life, which is a 17th century biography that kind of invented the way we think of historical biographies. Or else, so either the gospel is that, or else some unknown writer in the 2nd century without known predecessors or successors, in other words, without it ever happening before in history or ever ha- or happening after for subsequent centuries, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic, narrative fiction. If those things didn't happen, the writer must have accomplished this or else it's nothing but a fraud. The reader who, has not, who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. This is what Reynolds Price is saying. This is what I'm trying to say. If you read these accounts over and over again, you have these people with details saying, we saw this, this happened, this is how it happened. And it really forces us, modern people, into two really difficult positions. One position is you have to think, uh, okay, here's what happened. There was a group of first century Jews who had been culturally trained for thousands of years to not believe human beings were gods. They'd been culturally trained for thousands of years and in the 
course of just a few years, they changed their minds and they created an incredibly elaborate, deliberate system of lies, lies that they died for, lies that they died for not for what they believed, but for what they were saying till their very gruesome deaths they saw. Not only that, they also lived such compellingly beautiful lives that it eventually it took over the entire Roman Empire. Greeks, other cultures, including other Jewish people, were overwhelmed by the beauty of their lives. So you have to believe that these people, historically what I just said is undeniably true, these people were also the same people who were coming up with these deliberate lies that a human being was God in the flesh and did these things. Or, and this is the other part, and it's uncomfortable for modern secular Americans. You can say this is true. And I know virgins don't give birth. I know resurrections don't happen. I live in the same world you do. But John is trying to tell you, this happened. We have the same instincts you do about virgins not giving birth and resurrections not happen. But we saw this. We talked to him. We touched him. We saw his resurrected body. And really, those are the two positions. You can't say, you know, I'm a big fan of Jesus. I think he was a good man, had a lot of great stuff to say. But everything in those stories are mostly legends that have evolved over the years. You can't take it, uh, you can't take it literally. That, I think is intellectually lazy. And it often means you haven't read it or, or at least you didn't understand what you're reading. You don't have to believe to be a person of intellectual integrity, but you can't have that middle position. It's either a lie or John is telling us the truth of what he saw. Both are hard to believe. You have to decide which one's easier to believe. And John has written his whole gospel to make it easier for you to believe. So the first disciples do. They're curious and they go with Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to Nathaniel. You are an Israelite in whom there is no lying. That's what Jacob was. That's the people of God. And he says, you are an unlying liar. You are an honest liar. And Nathaniel's like, how do, you, how do you know anything about me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel is like, oh, wow, you're the son of God. And by the way, this is a hallmark of an eyewitness account, by the way, because we have no idea what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. A hallmark of an eyewitness account is a detail that meant a lot to the eyewitness, but is too intimate to be shared publicly. But Jesus doesn't let it end here. Here's what he says next. In John chapter 1, verse 50. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. And then he then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you see what story John's telling you about? What story Jesus is telling you about? He's quoting the story of Jacob. And he's saying, 
I am the true bridge. I am the true ladder. I am the true staircase. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus in this moment is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the thing that you're hungry for. He says, come and see. Don't you want this? That question that Jesus asked over and over in the Gospel of John, what do you want? It's almost Christmas. I hope you're getting asked that question by people in your life. What do you want? You know. But I think what John is trying to tell us right out of the gate is our deepest desire. I think what our deepest desires are is the glory of God and to be loved by God. Erwin McManus is a pastor in L.A. He's from El Salvador. He's a great communicator. And 23 years ago this year, in the year 2000, he was on a tour with other followers of Jesus through the Middle East. They were looking for different mission point opportunities. And at one point, he's in Lebanon. And um, there are some people that hear that he is there. And a Muslim man comes up to Erwin McManus and said, I have some friends who are all Muslim and they want to talk, they want to ask questions about Christianity. So we're going to meet in this room, it's just a handful of us. Uh, we're going to meet in this building at five. And so Erwin doesn't know exactly what to expect. He goes to this building and there's not just a handful, there's like 80 something guys. And they were all anxious to be in the room, including Erwin McManus. He said there was a tension in the room that you can only describe by being in the room. And he didn't know where to start. But he did know this about people, Muslims, in other parts of the world. That when Muslims in other parts of the world think of Christianity in America, they think all the stuff that America does is Christianity. And that's true. In my experience of traveling... They think pornography, racism, war, all that stuff, that's just Christianity. And so Erwin decided he was going to start with some common ground. And he says to these 80 men, I am a part of a movement that is trying to destroy American Christianity, which is a strong first move. And the men are like, well, where can we give? You know? And he said, it was founded 2,000 years ago by a man named Jesus Christ, and it is being advanced today by his sincere followers. And that started the conversation. All of a sudden, they're asking all kinds of questions. And Erwin keeps talking about what we're talking about today. And eventually, about 30 minutes into it, somebody raises their hand and says, you keep bringing up this word gospel. What does the gospel mean? And he realizes he has this moment. So Erwin said... Several decades ago, I met a woman named Kim, and I was immediately smitten by her. And I pursued Kim as hard as I could until I was sure that my love had captured her. And I asked Kim to marry me. And she said no. And so I kept pursuing her. I kept wooing her. I kept chasing after her until I was certain that my love had captured her heart. And I got down on my knee and I asked Kim to be my wife. And she said yes. But I could not send a friend and I could not have sent a relative 
And I could not have just written a letter. Because in matters of love, only the lover can communicate the message. Do you realize that's what Christmas means? There's not another story like this in the world. And deep in your heart, you ache for this story to be true. I believe it is everyone's deepest desire, whether they're aware of it or not. And John is telling you, this is not just once, on a time, once, on, once upon a time. This really happened. We saw it. We touched him. We talked to him. This is really true. Your heart's deepest desires. And Jesus, when he tells Nathaniel this, he's saying, I am the ladder. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't kick down the ladder and say, good luck getting up here. He doesn't say, climb as hard as you can. He is the ladder who did for... He climbed the ladder down. He is the ladder. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves because that's the kind of God He is. He is our dreams come 